Well, let's read the text for this morning, and then I'll pray. 2 Kings chapter 2, this is 19 to 22. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. And he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word and all its mysteries and all its plain things and all its obscure things. Thank you that we can look at it this morning. Bless it to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've made a bit of a start in this series on the life and the ministry of the prophet Elisha, noting firstly the circumstances of his call to be the prophet, and then the beginning of that ministry after Elijah's translation into heaven. And then we come to this text, which is short, rather brief, and at first glance appears a little odd and a trifle insignificant. It's easy that to feel that way about many things that we're told in Scripture. Sometimes we may well scratch our heads and wonder about details that we are told about, only to discover at some stage that God has used such detail for his purposes in the salvation of someone or of many. And though in this text there hardly seems much worthy of notice, it shouldn't surprise us that there is more than meets the eye here as well. In painting a picture of the ministry of Elisha, we will find that the author has collected together a series of somewhat bizarre incidents that combine to give something of an overall description of this, that Elisha's ministry was very much a forerunner of the ministry of Jesus and so much like Jesus that Elisha did the miraculous. So in the text, the matter on one level seems to be quite plain. There's a pleasantly placed city with a river which has water that's unfit for drinking and there's a bowl full of salt effectively applied by the prophet. By what you or I may reckon, none of these items have any great significance in and of themselves. But on taking a closer look, let's see if there's more than meets the eye at first glance. First, note the city with the great need. It's been 14 years now since we moved to the city of Bendigo, so-called the city in the forest. And like some of you, we've lived in other places. As a family, we've enjoyed the mountains and sights of the upper Yarra Valley, the tropical paradise of a Pacific island, the rather strong breezes and the ocean in the southwest of Victoria, and now the joys of living in central Victoria. And I can say that while each place has been a great place to live, each place has had its own goods and bads. That will be true of any place you care to live, wherever it is in the world. They say that Melbourne is high on the list of the world's most livable cities. Maybe it is, 
but I really can't comment having not lived there for the last 36 years and having seen only one city bigger than it, and that was Sydney. Now, Sydney's big, but it's by no means the biggest. It pales into insignificance behind other cities of the world, like Tokyo, Paris or New York, in terms of people and size, but maybe leads these other cities in terms of its setting by the harbour and its natural beauty. Now, according to our text, the newly built city of Jericho was also a rather nice place to live too. If you know anything at all about the history of Jericho, you will know that the city of Jericho was destroyed in Joshua chapter 6, and you will wonder, how is it that Jericho is here again? The answer to that is in the scriptures. 1 Kings 16 tells of the rebuilding of Jericho and the sacrifice paid by the man who rebuilt it, as God had foretold, the death of the man's two sons. So here was new Jericho, some nine or ten kilometres west of the Jordan, with a pleasant outlook away to the west and to the east, with fertile soils and plants of various kinds flourishing in abundance. Sounds like a nice place to live, except for one thing. The water was bad. A.W. Pink says here, In this, a god had evidenced his displeasure on that accursed rebuilding of Jericho by making its water unwholesome and the ground barren, or as the margin notes, causing to miscarry. The Jewish commentators understood this to mean that these waters caused the cattle to cast their young, the trees to shed their fruit before it was mature, and even the women to be incapable of bearing children. The Hebrew word which is rendered, the water is bad, is a much stronger one than the English denotes. In the great majority of cases, it's translated evil or wicked, first appearing in the reference to the tree of knowledge, good and evil. So instead of being a source of life and health, which water can be, it was a harbinger of death. Places of natural beauty are fine, and people always want to live there if they possibly can. But what use are charming places of external beauty if they are watered by streams of death? What point is there having a lovely place to live if death will be the result of living there? Warnable's a pretty place to live. The ocean and the rivers are lovely places to see. The Upper Yarra Valley is beautiful with snow-capped mountains in winter and autumn. Vanuatu too has lush vegetation, volcanoes and beaches with black sand. There are beautiful places everywhere. What was said of Jericho could be said of so many places in the world. The situation is pleasant. But in this world, so marred by man's fall into sin in Genesis 3, there is no perfect place. And everywhere you go, whatever country you are in, the same will be true for every city and town. Every place has its own rivers of death, its own source of evil. Of course, I'm not referring to any ecological kind of pollution here but entirely pollution in the spiritual realm. Jesus referred to this in our reading from Mark 7 this morning. 
The Pharisees thought and taught that evil could be caught like germs, that if you hang around with sinful people, you will get infected by their sin. They also thought that you could be defiled in the sight of God by eating certain types of food, and therefore they were pretty particular with who they hung around with and what sort of food they ate. But in Mark 7, Jesus very carefully explained that sin was already deep within their hearts, that sin did not live in what you ate, but was something that came out of you because it lives in you, not something that it gets into you by contact with sinners. He said, out of men's hearts come all kinds of sin, agreeing with Jeremiah's assessment that the heart is deceitful above all things. So as we look at the world, as beautiful as it is, guess what? We see the effects of sin everywhere. That daily newspaper gives us illustration after illustration that something is terribly wrong with the world, with our nation, with our city, with our neighbourhood, with ourselves, no matter how beautiful these places might be. The papers tell us that there are rivers of death right through our society, streams of murder, trickles of child abuse, rivers of robbery, lakes of hatred and prejudice and unbelief and so on. It's not just New Jericho that has a pleasant outlook, but a rotten water supply. It's us. Out of the hearts of sinful men and women and boys and girls flow rivers of sin. All dressed up and all pretty and all made to look acceptable, but let's call a spade a spade and say that everywhere we go, everyone is a sinner and everyone sins. That's not being general. That's not leaving us out of the picture. The Bible says we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and we all sin and add to that river of death. Years ago, an English newspaper was publishing a series of editorials on the topic, What is Wrong with the World? and inviting people to write in. The great writer G.K. Chesterton wrote the following letter. Dear Sir, what is wrong with the world? I am, yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. But second note here, the prophet with the simple cure. It's within the context of this set of circumstances that Elisha's first miracle, apart from the parting of the Jordan, which was just a bit of a test run, takes place. In one sense, this miracle he performs with the bowl of salt will sum up the whole of Elisha's ministry, that of bringing life where there is death. Something also that reminds us of Jesus, who encountered death wherever he went, but always dealt with it, and whose first miracle was also with water. And by the way, it's no coincidence that we never find Jesus conducting funerals in the Gospels. There's a very good reason for that. Every dead person that Jesus came into contact with lived again. And here with Elisha, who parallels Jesus in so many ways, we find that what he does, in this case, speaks to the heart of our situation. Note these things. Note that Elisha went to the source of the trouble. He did not simply go down to the river and throw salt in. But he went to the source of the pollution, to the spring from which the waters came. 
it would have done precious little to put his remedy here and there when it needed to be applied to the core of the problem. Same is true for our situation. There is some merit in tackling the social evils of murder, of rape, of abortion, of adultery, of drug abuse. But the source of all these problems is the human heart. Education or retraining or correction programs, as useful as they might be, are not going to be the ultimate answer. They might well provide band-aid solutions. But God doesn't deal in band-aid solutions. Instead, he changes hearts and makes people new creations, not simply patched up old ones. And he intends to make new creatures by the means of the gospel, which is his message to the world of how sin's power can be broken and hearts transformed through Christ who died and rose again. Then also note that Elisha used unusual means. A bowl of salt applied to a spring of water. Anyone observing Elisha might have thought that this was a joke. This remedy seems so ridiculous. How could that little amount of salt reverse the death in that water supply? But here, again, think of it in terms of the gospel. Just as Elisha had some salt in a new bowl, so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that we have treasure in earthen vessels. The treasure is nothing less than the gospel. The earthen vessel is nothing less than us, the bearers of the message. And how ridiculous does our message sound in the world's estimation? Absolutely ridiculous. A man on a cross, scorned, ridiculed, beaten and crucified and buried. That's the message that changes the hearts of men? No wonder Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 that the message seems foolish to those who are perishing because that's just what it sounds like. But when the message is placed in earthen bowls and scattered upon the human heart, the result is remarkable. The blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. The gospel brings healing and cleansing and life in the face of death, rivers of living water that swallow up rivers of death. Then also note, Elisha acted in obedience to God's command. He may have had some trick up his sleeve that might have made the waters better for a while, but this was a permanent change that only God could bring about. For he is what we need, not trickery or sleight of hand, and it is so much like God to intervene where and when most needed to change that which can be hard, cold, barren and full of sin to become something that brings blessing and life. And then note that Elisha gave the glory to God. After doing what he did, Elisha didn't claim credit for the restoring of the water, and nor did he attribute the miracle to anything other than the work of the Lord. And this perhaps was why such an unusual medium was chosen to do the job, so that the glory of the unseen power of God might be shown clearly, and so that the inhabitants of that city of Jericho might know from where and from who their salvation had come. And again, isn't this the case with the gospel? Isn't this why we ourselves are so weak and the gospel so powerful? 
It's so that the glory goes to God and not to us. It's so that people will know that from the Lord comes salvation, that from the Lord comes blessing and joy, that from the Lord comes all that we need, that we ourselves are nothing, have nothing, and he himself is everything, and the solution is squarely and firmly in his hands. And when that solution of the gospel is ignored and even despised, then what are we left with? Just sin and wickedness abounding. There's a famous story that I wanted to relate to you, often told by the late Peter Marshall, and it's called The Keeper of the Spring. It's a story about a quiet forest dweller who lived high above an Austrian village along the eastern slopes of the Alps. The old gentleman had been hired many years earlier by a young town council to clear away the debris from the pools of water that fed the lovely spring flowing through their town. And so, with faithful, silent regularity, he patrolled the hills. He removed the leaves and the branches from the fresh flow of water. By and by, the village became a popular attraction for vacationers. Graceful swans floated along the crystal clear spring. Farmlands were naturally irrigated and the view from restaurants was picturesque. Years passed. One evening the town council met for its semi-annual budget meeting. As they reviewed the budget, one man's eye caught the salary figure being paid to the obscure keeper of the spring. Said the keeper of the purse, Who is this old man? Why do we keep him on year after year? For all we know, he's doing us no good. He isn't necessary anymore. By unanimous vote, they dispensed with the old man's services. For several weeks, nothing changed. By early autumn, the trees began to shed their leaves. Small branches snapped off and fell into the pools, hindering the rushing flow of water. One afternoon, someone noticed a slight yellowish-brown tint in the spring. A couple of days later, the water was much darker. Within another week, a slimy film covered sections of the water along the banks, and a foul odour was detected. The mill wheels moved slower, some finally ground to a halt. Swans left, tourists left, clammy fingers of disease and sickness reached deeply into the village. Embarrassed, the council called a special meeting. Realising their gross error in judgement, they hired back the old keeper of the spring. And within a few weeks, the river began to clean up. The point of the story is plain. That once we push God and his standards Out of the picture, to continue the metaphor, we open the floodgates for every kind of evil, all because we think that human wisdom is the absolute standard. Well, guess what? That sort of thinking is foolish in itself. The truth about this modern world is that we need the keeper of the spring more than ever. We need the gospel. We need that bowl of salt to be applied to the source of the trouble, for the world will forever only be offering band-aids in the place of radical surgery that's so desperately needed.
So where do we, where do you and I fit into the text and what it implies? Well, we fit into the picture as either part of the problem or as part of the solution. If you have not come to Christ and received forgiveness from the rivers of sin that live within you, if your life continues to just pour forth deeds and words and thoughts and actions unchecked by the grace of God, then you and we are only heaping upon our own heads more fuel for the day of judgment that awaits. But if you're among those who know the forgiveness of your sin through the cleansing power of the gospel of grace of Jesus, then you are part of the solution. You are missionaries called to be in this tasteless and dark world his salt and his light to proclaim by word and deed to the world the gospel of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. And as God's people in the world, our high calling is to be, dear friends, beggars telling other beggars where to find the bread, thirsty ones telling other thirsty ones where to find the fount of life who offers a drink of living water that will fully satisfy, never run dry. Remember what Jesus told the woman at the well in John chapter 4? He said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. If Elisha points us to Jesus this morning, this is how he does it. He reminds us that the water of life is there for all that are thirsty to drink. Salvation is offered to all without distinction and without charge. What do you think then of where you live? It's no doubt a pleasant place, but like every other place on earth, it's a place of death. There is a cure, and it's a simple one, and it's the only one, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Then take it, believe it, proclaim it, and share it in a world that so desperately needs it. Will you do that? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word blesses us and refreshes us. We thank you that it points us to great things that you have done for us. We thank you for the message of salvation that is so clear in the scriptures, that you so loved the world, that you gave your one and only Son, that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, apply that gospel to our hearts, we pray. Apply that bowl of salt where it's most needed, so that we, having our hearts cleansed through the shed blood of your dear Son on our behalf, which goes on cleansing us from all sin, that we might be effective in this world, able to share of the wonder of your grace. Thank you for this text today. Please teach us through it and remind us of the wonderful saving grace of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.